Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. And we are on our new format. This is the roundtable format of the Indie Matters podcast. Welcome one and all. Jacob and I are going to be talking to a few reporters today. Jacob, how are you feeling about the new format? You know what, Joey, I'm excited. As excited as one can be for a new podcast format. All right. Well, we are here with our DC reporter, Gabby Bierenbaum as well. Hello, Gabby. How are you doing? Hey, Joey. I'm good. How are you? Doing well. And today we are talking about a few topics, starting here with Gabby and Jacob talking about the the kind of the chaos in the internal workings of the Democratic Party here in Nevada. Later on, we're going to get into federal relief dollars for education. Then Sean is going to join us to talk about a big Tesla deal that happened. And then we're talking about snow in the legislature to wrap up this episode. But Gabby and Jacob, I'm going to let you guys take it away here with all the Democratic chaos. I guess to start, I'll ask one question before you two start talking, which is just, what is going on? Why? What, what, what was kind of the impetus for all of this? Well, cast your calendar back to the year 2021, Joey, because that's really where the meat of this starts. And that's the election of Judith Whitmer as the chair of the Nevada Democratic Party. After every election, right, the party elects a new chair for the next two years. And, and then that person is nominally in charge of what the party does. Usually that's fundraising and helping down ballot. It's not a crazy job. But Whitmer was an avowed democratic socialist, right? She she is on the left flank of the party. And Nevada's left flank of the party has been trying since 2016 to affect real change. And they've been butting up against the Reed machine, quote unquote, right? The political machine that was designed by former Senator Harry Reid to basically elect Democrats in Nevada. It's been enormously successful, one of the most successful democratic operations in the country for the last decade, certainly. And I think there have been questions since Reid's retirement and later his death over how effective that machine would be, Whitmer's election created a schism. So essentially, when Whitmer took over the party, there was a bit of a lag time between when she got elected and the actual levers of power changing. So in that time, the existing people who were running the Democratic Party, and those would be people involved in the Democratic establishment and the Reed machine, basically took out all of the resources that the party had, financial resources, transferred it either to the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee or to the Washoe Democrats, which is where in Washoe County they created their sort of own splinter group called Nevada Democratic Victory. And so with the 2022 midterms, where Nevada was a battleground for competitive races that Democrats needed to and successfully did defend all four, plus a governor's election that Democrats lost, basically you had the official state party taking on things in some capacity. And then you had this splinter group where the establishment read machine was working through and which all the Democratic candidates sort of preferred to work with and found much more helpful. Part of the schism was basically why did people not trust Whitmer? In her camp, she would maintain that it's because they didn't give her an opportunity to succeed basically from the get-go with removing the resources. She would say that the sort of read machine was against her because of that. People involved in the actual Democratic campaigns would say that it was just due to incompetence, that basically the party wasn't functioning well, that staffers involved in the Democratic Party were sort of sharing negative data about Democrats with outside sources, that there was just a lack of professionalism and functionality that they saw as, you know, that's something that they couldn't afford to lose in such a critical swing state. Yeah. And I think one important point of context here is that like Democrats in Nevada did very well in 2022. They won almost everything right near supermajority in the state legislature. They reelected Catherine Cortez Masto in an extremely tight race. They got three of the competitive House races under control. And the only race they really lost was the governor's race. But that governor's race, right, I think is it's what the establishment Democrats will point to and say, like, it didn't need to be this close. The immediate takeaway probably for 2024 is that there's no longer these two different groups trying to do the same thing. Now it's all housed under the Democratic Party. You know, they're going to have their voices in DNC. 
in the campaigns, the sort of broader question that this whole schism has posed, what is the role of progressive insurgents like a Whitmer type? Is sort of a state party the best vehicle for them to try to take control of the Democratic Party? Is the Democratic Party a worthwhile endeavor at all? Or should they just do their own thing outside of electoral politics? And so there'd been a report in Politico that basically Bernie Sanders, who, you know, won the Nevada primary in 2020, had been disappointed in Whitmer's tenure and sort of in the behavior of his followers, his disciples of Nevada. So I think going forward, it's an open question for the sort of Democratic Socialist progressive, whatever label you want to put on it, wing of the party and what's sort of their best avenue towards seeing the changes they want enacted. To put a whole bow on this, right, this ended in an election this weekend on Saturday in Carson City, where Whitmer went up against an assemblywoman, Danielle Monroe Moreno, who ran a a unity slate, she called it, essentially making the promise to heal the divisions of the Democratic Party, get rid of this schism, bring everything back under one roof. And she was backed by the establishment, right? The unions were backing her. The culinary union, which is a very powerful force in Las Vegas, made a rare party endorsement, in this case, in, in favor of Monroe Moreno. And, you know, we just saw this sort of mountain of endorsements for her. And for Whitmer, she lost the support of the Las Vegas Democratic Socialists of America, who didn't endorse anybody and basically called the party a dead end. In that context, Whitmer was blown out in a landslide of the state central committee, which is a group of like 400 plus, you know, democratic activists who voted overwhelmingly for Monroe Moreno. Well, with that, thank you, Jacob and Gabby, for explaining the fun internal politics of the Nevada Democratic Party. And uh, Gabby, we'll let you uh, get back to the Capitol. Thank you, guys. Bye. All right, Jacob. Well, we are now here with our second guest on the new format of the podcast. Welcome, Rocio, our education reporter. How's it going? Good. Happy to be here. Welcome, welcome. And so we are talking about ESSER. What is what is what is ESSER? What does that stand for? <laughs> well, it stands for the Elementary and Secondary School Emergency Relief Fund. And as I was writing the story, I was thinking about how crazy it is that it's been almost three years now since the pandemic started, because that's really what this money was dedicated for. So throughout the pandemic, Congress issued three separate federal packages to stimulate the economy. And ESSA refers to the portion that specifically went to K through 12 schools. First, initially getting through the first days of COVID, you know, schools are shut down, they need to reopen. And then, you know, longer term, once the schools reopen, you know, how are they going to help their students overcome some of the challenges that they experienced throughout the pandemic, academic learning loss? You know, we talk about the social and emotional impacts on students. So districts were able to draw from this funding and not have to worry about, you know, where am I going to take out funding to support all these things that my students need now? One way you could do that is through supporting your teachers. So you'll see some districts use the money to implement training programs for teachers. You have better teachers that are better trained. Now you've got better, you know, staff to help your students. They also focused on retention. You know, we can't educate students if we don't have the staff to educate the students. So retention bonuses were another popular thing, especially as teachers were suffering from burnout throughout this time. They also used them to do hiring incentives for positions that they experienced critical shortages in, like bus drivers. You know, we need bus drivers to get our students to schools. They also hired a couple of specialists to really help out students again with this learning loss. So bring in reading strategists, math strategists to help students in those kinds of areas. So how much money was there dispersed throughout the state? How much did each individual district get was kind of the breakdown? Yeah, so in total, we received $1.6 billion from the three ESSER packages. And from that, Clark County School District, as you would imagine, they're our state's largest school district, 
got a whopping $1.2 billion, followed by Washoe County School District, about $122 million, and then the State Public Charter School Authority, which got about $83 million that it dispersed throughout the more than 70 public charter schools across the state. And we have the full breakdown on our website. But as you can see, you know, it's as expected. Larger school districts got larger amounts, and then you'll see the smaller school districts start getting smaller and smaller increments. That's a tremendous amount of money. But I guess my curiosity, you know, right now in the legislative session, there's all this talk about $2 billion going towards education as part of the new funding formula, right? All of this federal money is a one shot, right? Big injection of money, but it's not coming back. So I guess my question is, what happens when it's gone? When I talked to State Superintendent Ebert about that, she told me that from the beginning, she's been directing state school districts and charter schools to really be thinking intentionally about how they're going to invest their funds. She recommended either figure out how you're going to make this live beyond the funds or figure out how to gradually phase it out or think about whether you'd be able to put in your own funding into this program to make it long lasting. It just kind of depended. So, you know, obviously there's some things like, for example, once the purpose of tutoring is done, you can gradually phase that out. Or like uh, Clark County was telling me that they got laptops. And so laptops are something that could definitely outlast the funds for a long time. But for other things like teachers and stuff that they wanted added in, they'll really have to decide, do we want to keep these positions or do we not want to keep these positions? And a lot of school districts and charter schools are definitely counting on the state to pass the additional $2 billion into K-12 through education so that they don't necessarily have to give up all these things that they bought during the pandemic for their students. All right, Rocio. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast and explaining all of this to us. And we're going to we're going to bring in Sean now to talk about more money moving around in the state. But it's not really coming from the federal government. We're going to be talking about internal moving around with Tesla. So thank you so much, Rocio. And we'll, we'll have you on the pod again soon. Yeah. See ya. We've brought in data reporter extraordinaire Sean Galanka. Welcome, Sean. Hi, Joey. Good to be here. <laughs> on the new podcast. The new format. Welcome, welcome. Jacob and I. Jacob's having a blast hosting more. I'm having such a good time. I'm having such a good time, Joey. <laughs> so big news with Tesla this week, right? They've got millions and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in tax abatements from the state. What's going on? Explain it to me. So basically, Tesla, they already operate the Gigafactory at the Tahoe Reno Industrial Center in Story County. It's a massive multi-million square foot facility where they're producing EV batteries, you know, lot, lots of electric vehicle manufacturing. And basically, Tesla has decided we want to expand the Nevada Gigafactory. We want to open two new facilities there. And Tesla is going to invest $3.6 billion in capital to make that expansion happen. Now, that number is very key because under Nevada law, any capital investments of more than $3.5 billion qualify for a massive tax abatement package. So basically, because Tesla is making this, this large capital investment in the state, they've qualified for more than $400 million tax incentive package. So, Sean, this seems like a good time to ask, what is a tax abatement? That's a good question. I think there's been a lot of confusion about this. A lot of people who are likening it to welfare or a government handout to a billion dollar company. And really, it is not that. Basically, what an abatement is, is a reduction in the tax rate that a company pays for a set amount of time. So, for example, one of the abatements that, that Tesla was approved for just this week was a 100% reduction in 
the in property taxes for 10 years. So basically, on these new facilities, Tesla is not going to be paying property taxes for 10 years. The state of Nevada is not giving Tesla any money. There's no taxpayer money going to Tesla. But Tesla is basically being allowed to not pay that tax money to the state for a set amount of time. And that's kind of an, an economic incentive to bring their business here. Right. So there's certainly no money going out, but also there's no money going in, right? Exactly. And there is some some money going out. For example, the sales tax rate is not fully abated. They do have to pay a certain sales tax rate. And so that is generating some money for the state. It's generating some money for another portion of the sales tax that goes to support local school districts as well. So what are the what are the critics saying here about about this? Tesla already got a pretty big tax break, right? An incentive to come to the state in the first place back in 2014. Exactly. This this all kind of harkens back to 2014 when Tesla uh, ultimately through negotiations with the governor's office of economic development and Governor Brian Sandoval's administration settled on Nevada for building Gigafactory 1 is kind of what it's known as now because of the new expansion being called Gigafactory 2. And so at that time, Tesla was looking at a $5 billion capital investment, and they were granted a more than $1 billion tax incentive package at the time. And some of those abatements are set to expire next year. But getting back to your question, Joey, the critics, perhaps the most vocal critic of this deal has been Senator Dina Neal, who has basically criticized the fact that there are tax breaks being given to one of the world's richest men, Elon Musk, who is CEO of Tesla. And so basically what what Senator Neal is saying is we shouldn't be granting these massive tax breaks to a company that can already afford to do this development on their own dime. And she was also critical of the process for how it's happened. Even though this process was created in 2014, it was set into law by the legislature to basically make the first Tesla deal happen. It remains on the books. And now that Tesla is taking advantage of it again, Senator Neal is basically saying, you know, whoa, 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 let's slow down here. We need more than a few days between the company's application going live and approval to actually consider this because it's all kind of been cloaked in secrecy until this point with the governor's office of economic development and the company having negotiations in in private. Mm. So I I wanted to ask about that, because to what degree is there an internal push and pull between the legislature, which is controlled by Democrats, and the governor's office, which controls the governor's office of economic development, GOED, how much does the legislature say, well, what if we wanted to be in charge a little bit of whether or not all this stuff gets approved? Right. And so there are some lawmakers like Dean and Neil who are saying that, who are saying we want more power of these over these abatements, but it was already the legislature who gave away all of their power over these abatements to the governor's office of economic development. And there were reasons for that. You know, it expedites the process of diversification of development. It allows GoEd to act more quickly on granting abatements and to bring companies into the state. But the legislature, you know, certainly likes to have the power of the tourists. They like power over, you know, monetary incentives and the finances of the state. And so There have been discussions about a bill that would return that power or give that power to the legislature. But when asked after the the GOED board meeting on Thursday, Governor Lombardo basically said he he was not supportive of that at this time. And and he wants to to keep the abatement process the way it is. So, okay, what's what's happening now? What's what's going on moving forward? And what does the future look like with this Tesla deal? What's next? At this point, Tesla is looking at starting construction by late summer, and and that'll continue over the next 
couple of years basically before it's completed. But like the original Tesla deal that saw thousands of new employees added to Northern Nevada, we saw housing costs rising in the Reno Sparks area. We saw an infrastructure strain just because of the amount of traffic, the amount of new people there. Tesla, they're going about this one perhaps a little more mindfully. They're saying, we're going to work on developing workforce housing for our employees. We're going to provide childcare at the Tahoe Reno Industrial Center for our employees. We're going to work on providing more carpooling options to reduce that traffic congestion along I-80. And so really with this deal, I think a, a lot of people have concerns about the infrastructure strains in Northern Nevada, but I think that's something that both Tesla and the governor's office are, are bearing in mind and are working to address as this expansion occurs. Well, thanks so much, Sean, and stick around. You'll be talking to us about snow in Northern Nevada alongside me and Tabitha, our other legislative reporter. Alrighty, well, we have brought Tabitha into the call. Sean has stayed in and Jacob, of course, is here. We're talking about the snow, the amount of, I can't believe it. It's a, an unprecedented year in, in, in Northern Nevada for snow. Tabitha, you were at the legislature when it was closed, right? Yes, yes, it was very, it was closed. There was a lot of snow. Mostly, I think people were concerned about the drive from Reno to Carson City because so many staffers commute. And I made that drive briefly and you, it was so hard to see in front of you because snow was just blowing everywhere. So we had a closure for a while. And I think the last time that we actually had this kind of a closure was like in 1989. And there was another big storm in 1937 where the lawmakers actually got stuck in Carson City and they got way more done than they had previously gotten done. So, that, so that's kind of a fun history fact for you. So what you're telling me is we need to lock the lawmakers in the building for the 120 I, days. You know, just for the record, I'm not saying that that is what we have to do, but I think it might actually get more done earlier on in the session <laughs> if we just shove them all in a room and said, you can't leave until, you know, XYZ laws are, are put in place. <laughs> well, it's been a crazy amount of snow. Jacob, you said that there's going to be more precipitation coming, right? Another atmospheric river will bring rain, Joey. Rain from the sky. I can't believe it. There's so much. It's great for the, great for the drought, but uh, it's hard to get outside when it's this much precipitation. But let's, uh, let's move on and talk about what happened at the legislature last week. So last week for me, there were actually a couple of higher ed bills. And you know me, I love higher education because it is my beat. And frankly, one of the big ones is that the, the legislature is looking at reducing the number of people on the Board of Regents, which governs higher education from 13 members to nine, and then uh, reducing the length of their terms from six years to four. The regents have had a fair amount of controversies in the last couple of years and be the first change to the board like this in over 20 years. Will it happen? We'll see. Tabs, what are you paying attention to? You know, I think one of the things that we've seen is that there are an inordinate number of bills that still are being drafted that we haven't seen actually introduced on the floor. So I think that's something that we should all be paying attention to and be aware of, especially because, you know, that drafting deadline is on the horizon and we need to get ready for it. So I think that's something that lawmakers are going to have to navigate. Speaking of bills that have yet to be drafted, Assemblyman C.H. Miller has a resolution that would basically create a ballot question to establish a state lottery. Now, this would have to pass out of the legislature in two consecutive sessions, but notably the gaming industry, including the Nevada Resort Association, which represents major casinos in Las Vegas, is, is opposed to that idea, as opposed to instituting a state lottery. So it'll be interesting to see once the language of the bill actually drops. But at this point, with, with the, the state's largest industry opposed, it doesn't seem like that is really going anywhere. All right. 
Well, with all of that, I'm sure we will have a lot more reporting on all those topics and more as the legislature continues to churn along. So Tabitha, Sean, and Jacob, thank you so much. And Jacob, let's read that outro. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We want to thank Rocio Hernandez, Sean Kalanka, Gabby Berenbaum, and Tabitha Mueller for being on the show today. The show is edited by me, Joey Lovato, and produced by Jacob and I, with additional help from Michelle Rendells. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, Tom Fox, and Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. 